Very cool. All right, thanks for coming today. Welcome to winter again. By to yesterday it wasn't winter, it's winter today. Tomorrow probably won't be winter. Um, I was texting with my brother-in-law. I'm going to admit this right up front so I have integrity. I leave tomorrow morning. I'm going to the Coachella Valley where Palm Springs is out in, desert, in the desert in Southern California. I'm going to play golf all week. Okay, I'm just telling you that right now. Uh, my brother-in-law and I golf a lot like we're about the same level of golfer. We will play one round tomorrow. We'll play two on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, different courses because there's so many courses, and then one on Friday before I come back. So I sent him a picture of this, and I said, winter continues here. And then he sent me a picture of his backyard with the palm trees and the whole thing, you know. So uh, it's just part of the deal, so you know. That's what's going on this week. Jim is actually, Jim and Nancy are both on vacation right now, which is well-deserved as well. So I thought I better, well, at least tell the truth about that. And since I'm going to teach a sermon about integrity, right, we should actually get a little bit about that. So I encourage you today to join me. We continue in this Sermon on the Mount kind of recalibration. We're saying this is the great reversal. It's not that Jesus, never ever forget this, it's not that Jesus was undoing the Old Testament and all of the laws, nor was he saying you need to now even more so obey all of those laws. He's saying I'm going to recalibrate it to where you have an understanding of what the intent of the law was in the first place and give you a picture. If you're going to follow me, give you a picture of what it means to be a part of a redemptive process moving forward from here because I will fulfill the law. None of you have the capacity to keep it or fulfill it. But I will fulfill it and actually finally conclude it on the cross. How many of you have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Um, his story is remarkable and he qualifies in this entire sermon um, actually, I've been referring to a lot of things. Uh, his core book that most people have tried to get some access to is The Cost of Discipleship. And the center part of The Cost of Discipleship is a handling of every aspect of the Sermon on the Mount because he really leaned into the Sermon on the Mount as one of the critical places where he could understand what was going on. And if you remember the story at all, he started off in kind of the... German higher criticism type place where many of the theologians in Germany were trying to disassemble the Bible and say it really just kind of contains some pieces that are God's word for us. And then he comes into the development of the entire Nazi regime and finally ends up because he's part of a group of people that try to get rid of Hitler, he ends up in a concentration camp and is actually assassinated well, the Allied troops are about two and a half miles away from the camp. And in this journey, as a pastor, as a martyr, as a spy, as a, everything else that he's a part of, he held on to the Sermon on the Mount as a critical piece. I want to read something to you that he sent to his brother. His brother-in-law, uh, Rudiger Schleicher, was an, a theologian, but he was as liberal as Bonhoeffer was conservative. Bonhoeffer believed, as Karl Barth had taught, they were actually very good friends. Bonhoeffer believed that God had to reveal himself to us on his own terms. Human beings did not have the capacity. There was an ontological barrier between God and man. 
and God had to be the one who crossed the divide. The, most of the theologians prior, starting for sure with Schleiermacher and some of the others, who were, they were saying, look, man has the capacity, thanks to the, the Enlightenment and all of our beliefs, we can go get God and make God come to be in us. And these, Karl Barth, Bonhoeffer, some others were saying, no, God has to reveal himself to us. Let me read this uh, from a letter that he wrote from his concentration camp cell to his brother-in-law, Rudiger Schleicher. He said, If it is I who determine where God is to be found, then I shall always find a God who corresponds to me in some way, who is obliging, who is connected with my own nature. But if God determines where he is to be found, then it will be in a place which is not immediately pleasing to my nature and which is not at all congenial to me. Have you ever thought about the fact if you have a God or an idea or a concept of God or Christianity or anything else that actually is very comfortable to you, there's a great likelihood that that has nothing to do with the reality of who God is. If you can create the God system that you have, that's not God, that's you. So he says this, the place where this happens is the cross of Christ. Think about it. It is the, in my tension theology that I have, a sense of there, everything is working in this tension that we can't really resolve or reduce. The cross is the single greatest illustration of that. It was the worst moment in history and the best moment in history at the exact same time. It's the best illustration. Whoever would find Christ must go to the foot of the cross and understand it as Christ explained it in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Bonhoeffer said. This is not according to our nature at all. It's entirely contrary to it. But this is the message of the Bible, and not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. And so Bonhoeffer does exactly what Jesus, and he recognized Jesus did. Jesus didn't dismiss the Old Testament and kick it out. He said, no, I'm going to tell you what it meant. I'm going to pull it forward, and it's going to matter as we are talking about the kingdom of heaven, what that really means going forward from here. Redemptively is how we actually understood it, eventually. That's what this sermon is about. So within this sermon, we still have that key, verse 19 of 5, where Jesus says, I did not come to abolish this law, but I came to fulfill it, not obey every word of it the way it has landed in our time frame, or his time frame, but to fulfill it. And the way he fulfilled it was by actually accomplishing the mission of the law on the cross of Christ. That is the core story of the gospel. If you start the story of the gospel at Jesus died for your sins without building the need for that from the fact that nobody can obey the Old Testament, you have missed the entire gospel story. It doesn't stand on anything. So that's what we've been doing is trying to say, look, let's look at this Sermon on the Mount. It's probably a compilation of a number of teachings through Jesus' ministry. And let's say, what is it that we get from all these little snapshot topics that helps us understand what the intent of the law was? And it should always illustrate to us that we have no capacity to keep it. It should always do that. 
That was what Jesus was trying to do. It's the good news, or the bad news, before the good news. What's going on? So, let's look at this uh, verse in chapter 5. It starts in 33. I think it's page 786, if you want to read it in those paper Bibles in front of you, which almost nobody uses anymore because we all have these things, um, and whatever, which is fine. But this is this little passage about oaths. Again, You've heard that it was said to people long ago, our ancestors, don't break an oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. That's not a direct quote from the Old Testament. It's kind of a summary. But I tell you, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by the earth, because it's his footstool. These are quotes from the Old Testament. Or by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. Or swear by your head. You can't even make sure whether your hair is white or black. Now, we have ways to deal with that now. I get that. But you can't reach in and decide to make a hair black or a hair white, is what Jesus is saying. All you need to say is simply, in the Greek, it says, vi, vi, u, u. Yes, yes, no, no. All you have to do is say this. Show this little math equation, Anne. Um, Yes equals yes. No equals no. An oath is not the factor that proves or confirms anything. When you say yes, it should be yes. When you say no, it should be no. And anything other than that is actually from the enemy, is what Jesus said. So let's look at this a little bit, because first of all, oaths, uh, these kind of promises like this of, of like solemn meaning, they don't seem to have the same kind of influence in our culture that they did in Jesus' time. At this point in time, the rabbis were spending all kinds of times chasing around, because you remember Jesus right, just right there said, oh, well, don't swear by the heavens, don't swear by the earth, don't swear by the temple, don't whatever. Um, you know, they're trying to sort out what is a binding oath that is the one that we can count on that we know is true. And Jesus says, don't, that can't possibly be the deal. If you say yes, it's yes. That equals yes. If you say no, that equals no. That should be the integrity behind this whole thing. should be that simple. Honestly, if you want to get up and walk out right now, you could and you have the core of this sermon. It should be the integrity that is dependable that is trustworthy, that is a posture that people know to be true about you, that you don't have to add a bunch of things. After the first sermon, I had several people come up to me and tell me their little paradigms that their grandpa used to use or something. One of them was, my grandpa used to say, I swear on a stack of Bibles. How many of you heard that one, right? You know, it's like, or you've got these different kind of mechanisms that we're going to refer to, and that shouldn't be necessary. Now, in Jesus' day, just so you know, it was typically an appeal that was made. An oath was an appeal that was made that involved a deity on some level. And that's why they were kind of hedging their bets a little bit by, well, I'll say if I include Yahweh directly, then they knew in their own law that if you follow through on this, it would be like you have just made an oath. You have a debt to pay to God as a result of that. You have called God in to defend your honor, and now you owe God that that was worthy of him defending your honor. That was kind of the imagery that they had in their head. Um, In the Old Testament, and pull up that little section, please, with Exodus 
20 and, and a couple of the... So in Exodus 20, that is the context, the first writing of the Ten Commandments. In verse 7, it says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. What do you think of when you hear that? Most of us now think, oh, well, don't, like, we use the word swear, which is interesting, but what we mean is cuss. Don't cuss and use God's name in a cuss word, you know. That's where we've gotten to this thing to mean. Like, uh, don't be vulgar and use God's name in that context. That's what we have, think that this is what this, uh, one of the Ten Commandments meant. And the repeat in Deuteronomy 5. That's not it at all. They would never have thought of that as be, don't be vulgar with God's name in it. What they thought was, unless you mean this with God as your witness, don't make an oath and claim to drag God into it unless you really mean it. Now, if you stop and think about that, it says right here in, in Leviticus, it makes it a little clearer in Leviticus 19, don't swear falsely by my name and so profane or drag my name down into the mud. Now, if you stop and think about it, did God say never ever do a swear, never ever make an oath on that? This doesn't say that at all. In fact, as Jesus ended up kind of vocalizing this as a prohibition against swearing on anything, that would have been so extreme to their minds, they would have literally said, who does this guy think he is? Everybody swears by God, or swears by the temple, or swears by this or that or the other, or Jerusalem, or something. What is he doing here? What's the prohibition have to do? We have to be honest about that. We also have to look at a little bit more that was part of their backstory. Put that next set of verses up, if you would, please, Miss Anne. When a man makes a vow, it says in Numbers, to the Lord, or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything that he said. That's a pretty strong reference point. It's very clear, right? And then by the time you get to the, the wisdom, they kind of flip it over backward. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. And the truth is, that's closer to what Jesus is saying at this point. Better off to not make one that got into this thing. There was also in their backstory, so I'm, what I'm trying to describe right now is the context, is Jesus is talking about this oath thing. This is what they had in their mind, is that if you make an oath by Jerusalem, it matters about this much. If you make an oath by your neighbor's stack of Bibles, it matters about this much. If you make an oath based on God's, then, then, then that's really trustworthy. But what I want you to stop and think about is like, what are the potential consequences of what's actually really behind that? I have this tendency personally. Now I'm going to talk about me. You probably don't do this, but I do. Where I insert the word honestly into sentences. I'll say, honestly, da-da-da-da-da-da. Or, well, think about this. And honestly, I really, da da In effect, what am I saying? Well, I believe it to be, in my little pea brain, I'm trying to emphasize something. I'm trying to, like, what I should say is yellow highlighter right here, or, um, hi, you know, to emphasize, I mean this. But for some reason, I say honestly. Well, what is the antithesis of that? The other thing is that all the other sentences I just said are dishonest. 
In effect, that's what I just did. By inserting honestly here, I have basically implied all these other things are iffy. Now, I know you don't do that, but I do that. I hear other people do it. And it's, the, it's this whole loophole mentality. Like we're looking for a way to almost say, well, I might have been a little exaggerative on that. But, you know, this, I'm seriously being honest right here about this right here. Why would we do that? What would be the mechanism that goes on in our mind? What are we afraid of to say all my other sentences weren't honest? I don't know. And this is me. So this is my deal. This sermon was really personal for me this week. Because I have to be careful. What am I actually communicating whether it's intentional or not? That's not even really the most important thing. What am I actually communicating when I say the words? And that's really what Jesus is trying to get at. He's saying, look, loopholes are not the deal. That's not the point. The point is, if you're honest about who you are, you know and recognize that there's sin in your life. There's things that are obviously, I, I might not be able to follow through on this. But you don't have to build verbal caveats. How many of you promise things to your children? Like, oh, we'll stop and get ice cream afterwards. Oh, I promise we'll go to Disneyland this summer, right? Why do you do that? What is the outcome you're hoping to get in the life of your children or your child that you use that mechanism? Are you trying to get them to behave? Often that's the one I see, right? This is nothing but pure, let's be honest, manipulation is all that is. It is truly, I'm going to try to get the outcome I want right now and to get you to project past this moment. I'm going to promise you a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers so that you'll... You see what, I'm, what we do? Why do we do that and think that it's actually a helpful mechanism in the relationship between us and our child? Why do we do that? Why would we use an oath, a promise as something that is literally to get the outcome that we want. And in reality, we may or may not get to go to Disneyland next year. You know, it's interesting because I've had to think about this thing and ask myself, some, sometimes we're literally trying to just get something that's immediate, and so we promise something that seems plausible long-term, but it's, it's to get the immediate outcome that we want. If we were, here's the truth, if we were honest consistently, we could make promises and they would be very meaningful, or we could not make a promise at all and it would still be very meaningful what we say and we do. There's a story about uh, President Lincoln. One of his cabinet members came to him and said, look, would you start writing a regular letter that can be put into the press that is a defense of all of the things that we make decisions about here. Like, you know, this is why we did this. This is why you can trust that. This is what the outcome is. Lincoln said to his cabinet member, if I were tried to, re to try to read, much less answer, all of the attacks that are made on me, then we'd have to do no other business but that. We might as well close down. He said, 
honestly, I do the very best that I know how to be truthful, the very best that I can. I mean to keep doing that until the very end. Now, if at the end it comes out that I was right, then what is said against me won't mean a thing. But if at the end it proves out that I was wrong, then ten angels swearing by God's name that I was right would make no difference at all. And that's honesty. That's integrity. That's a sense of saying it doesn't matter if I try to cover up. So if I, I'm like, okay, I'm trying to defend my honor here by having 20 people stand behind me who have credibility in our culture to say I'm trustworthy that doesn't mean a difference of a thing at all about the actuality of what's going on. It doesn't. And we all know that. We definitely know that. I mean, think about our political system. Do we try any word that anybody says in any scenario at any time on either side of the aisle? Can we? How is it that we've gotten to that place? That's our leadership. And then we've created the social media mechanism where people, they post the pictures they want you to see, they tell you, they, they polish everything up, they rip into another person that they're not having to face face to face and say unbelievably horrible things about them. I mean, we've created this whole cultural, societal mechanism that just to be direct and honest about what you say and not require a whole bunch of hyperbole to go with it. It's, it's a ludicrous thought almost in our culture. Our culture is not built for this idea. But neither should we go so far because some of the, even the church culture in its history has taken postures. There are group church groups that say, because Jesus said you should not swear about this and that, then we can't even go to court and swear on an oath in a courtroom. That's craziness. That isn't remotely what Jesus had in the intent was, I want you to now never say words of promise to each other. What he meant was, you should be able to say something without some big promise attached to it, and it should be filled with integrity so that it actually is true. That's the way it should be. So I started thinking about all of this, and I'm like, you know, for us then in our culture, I think it's worth our time to ask some questions about some of the oaths that we actually make, the vows that we make, the promises that we make. So let's get a little personal and a little more practical right now. I just, when I say vows, what do you think of? A wedding. Right? When I say that word, it's almost become attached. I just performed a wedding yesterday. By the way, it was spectacular and 53 degrees and the sun was out and the sky was blue, right? So this is Colorado. But it was wonderful. It's become much more common these days that people want to write their own vows that they're going to say. I love that because there's personal investment in it. I give them three suggestions in it. I say to them, why don't you... Uh, celebrate a little bit about your spouse that has caused you to be able to trust and have faith in that person. What is it about them? Be grateful, express gratitude for that, 
and then end with clear vows that are direct promises that are not wishy-washy and mealy like, oh, I'll kind of love you forever. What does that even mean? It doesn't even mean anything. Be specific. And I listened to the people's vows yesterday and I thought, this is so amazing. What they just said is so powerful. And then the cynic in me goes, I wonder how much of that they actually meant. That's the cynic in me. That's not them. That's not because I have any reason to distrust them. But I look at our culture and I wonder, are our wedding vows something that we seriously are committed to? Not ridiculously, not past a, a point where this now allows, gives licensure for the other person to be abusive and whatever else. This is not the, the standpoint at all. But is this something that we literally, we make decisions from these promises? Now I'm going to bring one up that's even a little harder. What about our, our uh, financial commitments? We live in a culture where it's totally legal and it's very common to use bankruptcy as an out clause. It's almost become a virtue. It's almost like you hear stories taught like, well, the most successful people in the world committed bankruptcy 13 times or, you know, whatever. It's like, like oh, that's what you need to do to be successful. That's ridiculous. Do we mean when we say we will pay that we mean it? How many of you have heard of the Heinz family? Anybody eat Heinz ketchup? Thank you. Yeah, a few of you are, are remembering this. Henry Hines came uh, with immigrants into the, in the mid-19th century, 1840s, to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And as he was a teenager, he actually helped his family survive by growing uh, different vegetables and things in the garden. And he developed a horseradish sauce. It was not the ketchup that made Hines famous. It was horseradish. He developed horseradish sauce that everybody wanted to buy. And the company grew, and they got to be quite powerful. In 1875, they had a national financial collapse that was much like the Great Depression came from. And he went into bankruptcy and had to declare that. He then proceeded for 40 years to go about the business of going back to the creditors to pay the debts from which he had legally been given grace. Legally, he did not owe them anymore. But he said, there is no way I'm going to have the definition of my life and the Heinz family to be defined by the defaults against what I promised that I would pay. Now, what's your response to that? Do you walk away with a sense of, well, this is a guy that's an idiot. He's a nut job. He's crazy. What kind of a moron would pay debts you don't owe? Or do you internally say, look at the integrity behind that. You can judge it for yourself. You can ask yourself that question. When he said something, people around him, was he a trustworthy person? Yeah. Am I saying you need to go back and pay all the debts if you had a bankruptcy situation? I'm not telling you that at all. But I'm asking you to consider what was redemptive. Heinz was a devoted follower of Christ.
deeply devoted in his faith. And he said, I cannot, if I'm going to talk to people about my faith, it's got to be built on something that actually shows that I mean what I am believing and saying. And the, it goes to the last one that I'm asked you to consider. What is your posture in being devoted to following Christ? How serious, how solemn. Are you a follower of Christ who says, I will, you know, if I can kind of get from Christianity what will make me feel better or, or the things. Or are you serious to follow Christ? Would you put yourself in a position that Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer was in the United States, had plenty of wealth, didn't have to ever go back to Germany. Then he pastored in England, went back to Germany again. And every time he said, the reason is, is because that's my people. That's where I need to be. Put himself in great risk without needing to at all. How many of you have heard of the Donatists? This is a story you may not know. Few people have heard of the Donatists. In the late 200s AD, 290s, Diocletian, who was a Caesar, put together the single greatest organized, the most pervasive and well-executed persecution of the church in its history. Nobody's ever done a better job than Diocletian. He believed that the pagan gods were mad at Rome because the Christians were pushing the pagan out of the scenario. And so he went about the business systematically, nothing personal, <laughs> to say, we're going to take their scripture, we're going to burn their churches down, we're going to kill all of their leadership, and we're going to drive them all into a place of either recanting their faith or the potential threat of death. And thousands of people were killed. But in that situation, he always gave people the option. Will you recant? This is where it started, by the way. We hear, and hear this concept. It was Diocletian that came up with, give people the chance to reject. And a number of people did. And even a bishop in North Africa that had Hundreds of churches underneath him and pastors and followers of Jesus underneath him. He recanted. He brought ceremonially, brought the scriptures copies that they had and brought them for, for uh, Diocletian soldiers to burn. And he said, I reject my faith. Early 300s. And then you know the Edict of Milan when Constantine made Christianity the Religion of the Roman Empire is 315. It's just a couple of years later. So what you've got now is this bizarre situation where you've got a whole number of people who were faithful to their commitment to Christ. And many people martyred and put in great positions of marginalization. And you have a whole bunch of people who rejected their faith. And now it's safe again. And a number of the people, including that bishop in Africa, said, I was only kidding. I didn't really reject Jesus. I was just seriously just kidding. It was like we could have died. I didn't want to die. I didn't want the people around me to die. And so I didn't mean that when I rejected Jesus. Now I completely want, I, I want to come back into my position as a bishop and all my pastors and everything. 
and there was a bishop elsewhere in Africa who said, wait, I lost family members because we were faithful. And it took over a century for the church to sort it out. Two side-by-side churches were going on. Whole congregations of people who built buildings and put icons up and had doctrine and taught and, and had baptisms and everything else. And this group were the people who had rejected Christ or derivatives of those people during the Diocletian event. And then this group had been faithful and they, neither one of them wanted to do with either the other. And they believed exactly the same. It's just that their story was different. It took to St. Augustine in the 400s who said, there's a way to reconcile and put this together. But for decades, the church was split right in half because of faithfulness or not, because of devoted followership or not, because of following through on your commitment to follow or not. So the question for us, for me, for you, is how serious is this devotion? Have you made an oath, a commitment to Christ? I know it's a journey. I've made a number along the way. I recanted, no, I re-upped this week in this process. Because I said, I actually have the choice. God respects me enough that He gives me the chance. I could turn away from all of this. So could you. But I'm hopeful that you would re-up. Let's pray. Lord, we're uh, grateful to consider oaths and promises and vows and covenants. They matter. It's uh, different in our culture now. But for sure, we know that uh, our word should be our bond. That still should be trustworthy. Thanks that Jesus gave us an, a reality in a sense of, okay, trying to sort out all of these things and is this binding, is this not binding? That's not the point at all. Personal integrity is the point. And uh, thanks for the chance that we have to be redemptive with our follow-through, redemptive with our devotion, with our commitments. Um, and that you will use us sometimes to be, <laughs> to accomplish amazing things. Thank you for using us in that way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If the ushers would come, we're, uh, we'll receive an offering uh, at this point in time. We do this every week if you're a part of this church culture. And then we'll stay and we'll celebrate communion together as a, as a congregation.